And so today we return to the book of Philippians. We will be in the second chapter, and I'm going to start off with the verse uh, to start with. So if you will, turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. With fear and trembling. Let that soak in. With fear and trembling. How does that work? Are we supposed to be, as the word implies, to be fearful of God? Terrified? Are we talking about like a haunted house experience where you just get fright? I mean, that makes you tremble, right? This trembling, this shaking. How is this supposed to be how we work out our salvation? And are we supposed to work out our salvation? I thought Paul preached over and over again that salvation was a free gift of God. So how does this work? Well, one thing is for sure. If you've ever read your Bible, you know that it is full of paradoxes. There are these things that we just can't comprehend with our human minds. It's trying to see things from God's perspective. God sees in past, present, and future all at the same time. How do you look at stuff? I can't do that. Sometimes I'm smart enough to think about past events as we are occurring in the presence, but most of the time I screw up in the presence and remember I screwed up last week too and it didn't help me any. But God can see this full picture, not only of everything that's going on, but also from the standpoint of eternity. But the Bible is full of these paradoxes, these logically unacceptable phenomena that seem self-contradictory. But the Bible doesn't contradict itself, so what is it? We know that God is holy and just. Holy is something totally separate than us. Think about the Old Testament when they had set up the, the tabernacles or the temple and there was a special room that only the priest could go into and they would even tie a rope around his leg in case he did something wrong, they could drag him out. But there was this idea of separation between God and humanity. But this idea of holiness that is solely apart from us, which us, a sinful creature, can ever approach is also balanced with this idea of mercy and grace. I'm very thankful for the testimony y'all shared just a little while ago because I didn't realize you were going to speak about this today and it flows directly into the sermon because one of the topics I want to talk to you about is synergism. Synergy. It's two things coming together for a greater purpose. And in many ways, our text today, when we talk about fear and trembling, is two parts. Because if we just look at on the surface from an individual perspective, we will miss what this text is trying to tell us. Because if we just look at it up front, just by itself, it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
In one instance, Paul is talking about you are saved by grace. But now he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. These don't seem to go together. Well, let's talk about some church words for a minute. They are some that we like to use, a lot of preachers like to use, maybe Sunday school teachers. There are three of them, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Big words. Can you try to work those into just normal conversations? You know, this could be like an office bed. If you've got an office pool, maybe like if you can work one of these words in, you'll have like, how many did you get today? It could be one of those, because these are not easy words to just work into a normal conversation. So what is justification? Justification is the idea. It is the understanding that as human beings, we are totally corrupt. There is nothing in us that is redeemable. And God saw that from the standpoint of eternity. But he had a plan. He had a plan to justify you before him. This holy God that is holy other than us. And other this that we can never bridge on our own. No matter how hard we try, we're always too far behind. But it's the idea of the cross. It is through the blood of the Lamb that has been spilt. It is through the death and burial of Jesus. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He was resurrected. He defeated death. And through our belief in the Son, we are justified before God. Because it is through His blood that we are washed white as snow. There is nothing on our part that can earn justification. It is a gift. All we have to do is to believe in the Son and follow Him. That is justification. So justification is the beginning. It is the past. It is what happened long ago, but it's still active in the present. So we talk about this other word, sanctification. Sanctification is a tough one because Christians have tried different ways over the course of history on what it means by being sanctified. Or in more layman's terms, this growing into Christ-likeness. So how do we become more like Christ? The witness that we find of Jesus in the Bible. The witness that Paul says, imitate me. How do we grow closer to that? Well, some Christians have realized that we are not capable of growing in our likeness of Christ on our own. And so they basically said, you're supposed to submit to God doing it for you. Well, there is some merit in that because we know that it is the Spirit working in our life that allows us to do things that we normally can't. It gives us the strength to love our enemy. It gives us the power to see someone in pain and empathize with them. It is the Spirit working in our lives that gives us compassion for the less fortunate, or a passion to do things in ministry. That is the Spirit. So for some, they say, well, just let the Spirit work in your life. Well, that works great, but there was a, a story that a pastor told me. He said it was Youth Sunday at his church, and, and there was a, a, a rising star in the youth group that really thought he was going to be a preacher when he grew up. 
And he would lead Bible studies and all those great things. And then one Sunday they said, we're going to do a youth Sunday. We're going to let you preach. He said, great. And so the pastor earlier in that week said, hey, what are you preaching on? He said, well, I thought I would just wait until I get there and let the Spirit move. Have you ever heard a sermon like that? Well, you might have. I might have given a few like that. But he said, no, that's not how it works. He said, the Spirit works in your study just as much as he does in your proclamation. you got to have a general idea. And so when you prepare sermons, or for this particular, you have to bathe that in prayer. You have to let God lead you to text. Lead you in a direction that the sermon is to go. But it's not just about the Spirit's work. It's a little bit about you. Now, there's also the polar opposite. So we see that the Spirit helps us, but there's a lot of human effort involved, isn't it? And so we have these pietistic groups that have come along, and they focus everything on human effort. So they focus on study, self-discipline, all these kind of things. And they say, yep, God can be there, but you know, it's our pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps mentality, and we're going to get this thing done. It's something that I'm doing. Well, both extremes can be bad. And so when we talk about synergism, it's the combination of the two. It's what we see in the Old Testament. Do you remember the book of Judges? We had these powerful leaders who were raised up by God to deliver the Israelites from their enemy. How did those stories always begin? And the Spirit of God led so-and-so. So the Spirit was working even in the lives of of the people way back before Jesus. But there was a human side. Do you remember the stories of Moses? I mean, what was all this tapping on rocks and raising up staffs all about? God had chosen to deliver the people, but he was using Moses, this stuttering kind of character, to do it. That God used weakness in the eyes of the world, to show His power. And then the future. This idea of glorification. This is really the goal of what we do. This is when we are released from our sinful flesh and are given new bodies, these resurrected bodies. When things are made complete, Paul speaks of this in Corinthians. Do you know how this happens? It's not some weird metaphysical kind of reaction. It happens simply. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 10. Verse 10. It says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effort. No, I work harder than them all. Yet not I. But the grace of God was within me. So this was this idea of synergism. But in the book of John, 1 John, we find these words. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we, what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. So that's what it says. We don't know what it's going to be like. We don't know what this glorified body is going to be like. 
some of those disciples did. For they saw Jesus for a period of 40 days after his resurrection. And he ate with them, broke bread with them. Did incredible things with them. But it says for us, we are children of God. God's children, the heirs of the kingdom. And when we see Jesus face to face, everything will be different. For now we only know dimly. And through the eyes of faith, we grow in our trust. So again, how does this work? This idea of fear and trembling. You know, fear can mean something else. Fear doesn't have to be fright or terror. Fear can be this idea of reverent awe. Have you ever experienced reverent awe? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Maybe you have a sister or a brother or a wife or a husband that really has an idol. For men, maybe football players or some kind of movie star. But you know these people who really are their fans. Number one fans, these kind of people. Have you ever seen the reaction when a number one fan meets a celebrity? Have you? You know, they'll have this big talk that they may even know they're going to meet them and they're going to have all these conversations but then they meet him. What happens? Silence. Shaking. Trembling. It's this reaction because of this celebrity figure that's in their presence. They don't know what to say or they say really dumb stuff. Think of Peter, Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? Peter is face to face with God and Jesus in his glory. And he says, can I build y'all a couple tents so we can hang out? That's what he tells him. We see that in the idea of Hollywood and celebrities with some of these fans. That they don't know what to say or they say these dumb things. Because they're out of themselves. This is kind of what the idea of fear in this text is talking about. It is understanding your place before God. And there was a key to this text. And somebody may have taught you this before. What was the first word? Therefore. If you're ever reading your Bible and you come across, therefore are the what but, you better pay attention. And therefore is kind of a conclusion of what came before. So you have to backtrack. And we're now well into chapter 2. And there's a therefore... In verse 9, there's another therefore in the first verse of this chapter. The context of this story begins where our prayer from last week ends. And Paul is teaching his people about the advancement of the gospel. He tells them about his time in prison. He says, don't worry. This is God's purpose He says, for my time in here, I've been able to share the gospel. All he asks for is for boldness so that he may speak. Talks about the trials that are upcoming. He talks about how the word is spread through some of the guards and all these families and things that are being affected because of where he's at. And even talks about those other preachers who are kind of bad-mouthing him about him being in prison. 
but they're still preaching the gospel. He said, their motives may not be pure, but what does it matter? The gospel is still being spread. It is not the words of the preacher, but it is the power of the Spirit and the words. And he rejoices. But he doesn't just stop there. He talks about how they should live. How they should be worthy examples because of the suffering and the sacrifice that Christ has done on their behalf. And he gives Christ example of his humility. And in verse 5 he tells them, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. If you can say, you know, that old saying back in the 90s, what would Jesus do? They made the little rubber band bracelets about. This was kind of that idea. Is how would Jesus react in these circumstances? Well, this is what he says. He says, Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing but taking the very nature of a servant, being made into human likeness and being found in the appearance as, as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, it says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now you understand the therefore. This is not something for you to gain on your own. This is a therefore. This is a response to what Christ has done for you. That he would condescend. That he would come down to earth. He would make himself lower than the form of a slave. Imagine that. God coming down to be with us. To be obedient to the word. Obedient unto death. Yes, death on the cross. This is what it tells us. And this is how we are to stand in awe and shaking in that very meaning. Because Christ has done it for us. And this is why we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I would have gotten counted off on this translation in English when I took my Greek class. Do you know why? It says, your salvation. I'd have gotten it wrong. You know why? Because it's plural. My teacher was a good southern. He said, when you come across a plural, you have to translate it y'all. He wanted to make sure I knew the difference. So this is about y'all's salvation. It's not about your individual salvation. That's where the pietists get it wrong. Because they want to earn their place in front of God. This is about y'all's salvation. The church in general. Us in particular. 
This is how we are to live together, to work it out in fear and trembling. We are to come together for a purpose, and that purpose is only Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are used His example on the cross, how He was obedient unto the Word, unto the point of death. This is how it works. This is a corporate command for the church at Philippi to live out. This is not about a special few among you who have the gift. This is about us all. This is about every one of us. This is the call that Paul placed on their lives. He says, dear friends, you have always obeyed the teachings of the gospel. He said, it doesn't matter if I was with you or apart. He said, it doesn't matter if we are meeting together on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, or where you're at in your place of work throughout the rest of the week. He says, you were obedient unto the word. Basically, keep it up. Go work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But you're not alone. The God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. This is how the synergy works. It is part of our effort, but we are not doing it by ourselves because it is a Spirit living in us corporately as we join together week after week to fulfill His purpose of living a life worthy of a gospel in humility to Christ's example, but most importantly, in a mindset that Christ has given us. This is about entering community with the idea of all generations present. There's a cycle of events. There are mentors who bring up mentees. But before they are even in that relationship, they are now inducted into the family. It's a cycle. You see that? You have to have someone to train. The trainer invests in those being trained. But the trainee doesn't stay there for long. They invest in those coming in. It's a cycle. And if as a community we fail in any one point of the cycle, whether we fail in evangelism and no longer bring new people in, or we fail in training up those that are young or weak in the faith, or we don't make room for new leadership to step into place. The cycle will fail and crumble. And before too long, God will replace us. Just like every great form of government this world has ever seen. God will put in place for a time, and He will tear down for a time. As long as it meets the needs of His people, we will thrive. But when we as humans fail to live up to God's call on our life, it is taken away. That's why Paul instructs this growing church to work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for today. 
We are thankful that you have given us this opportunity to come into your house. Lord, teach us how to be a community that lives in awe of you. That makes every decision in light of our relationship. Teach us how to bring new believers into a more mature faith. How to open up positions of leadership so that they may spread their wings. And how to invest in those who do not yet know you as their Lord and Savior. It is in your name we pray. Amen.